Welcome to the Island Podcast. I'm Olivier Legree, your host from the Island. Today we're going to talk about the Sotheby's Art Block Sale, so let's get started. Today I'm joined by Sébastien Montabonel, CEO of the Island, and Marcin, philanthropic and investor in the Island. We're about to leave to Paris on our way to the Sotheby's Art Block presentation of the Vera Molnar Themes and Variations Sale. But first thing first, Sebastian, third bees and primary sale. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? No, I think that's really interesting. If we look at the histories of uh, auction houses, they've been trying to go into that market, so the primary market, for a long time. I mean, if we look at auction houses dealing with the secondary market, only deal with a fraction of the potential buyers. So if, uh, if you ask around you, how many of you have been uh, buying, let's say, NFTs? more or less everyone, how many of you have been buying from Sotheby's or Christie's? A handful. So for any auction houses, their, their job is to get a greater network of potential buyers or sellers going into the primary market it will always be part of their strategy. The question is, can they deliver? Sebastian, what do you think? How big is secondary relative to primary? It's difficult to, to, to have a precise, uh, because Auction houses, we have all the data, the primary market, so everything that is sold directly off via the artist or through the galleries. It's a bit of a dark market, we have no idea. But according to some reports, in terms of a value, and not volume, value, maybe 30% of the market. In volume, a lot less. Yeah. I, th I, yeah, I think I saw that, that number in the, in the UBS yes. report. Uh, And I think it only covered the top of institutionalized galleries and dealers and auction houses, that that was 30%. In real broader definition, it would be a lot less. So primary is significantly bigger than secondary, obviously. Yeah, definitely. It's a bigger business to go after. Absolutely, yeah. Entering the primary market was a bit of a surprise, but between you and me, the fact that it's Sotheby's that done it isn't. That's, that's what I believe after people can... Uh... You know, they can think uh, otherwise. But just before before the, the pandemic, there's this French investor who bought Sotheby's called Dry. And uh, Dry is a French investor, well-known in France and uh, very close to the tech. I mean, to the finance, he's a finance guy, but to, to the tech community. And he believes in tech very strongly. So he bought the company for $3.7 billion. The first thing that he's done it, the Sotheby's was a listed company. They were on the stock market. The first thing he did, he took it uh, away from the stock market. And uh, then he really has that belief that uh, technology will replace uh, people. So in some aspect, he's right. In terms of a relationship with clients, I'm not so sure. Overall, it doesn't really matter. What matters for us is I'm not surprised that they are leading uh, that revolution in that space because Dry, the owner, have uh, by birth uh, this ability to understand technology probably much better than uh, Christie's and uh, Philips. I think that, I mean, that's super interesting. And I think the innovation for an auction house could come in two directions. One, or even three, but one, obviously improve the technology and the process of sales. And while the evening sales in New York and London are phenomenal social event and you know, will be you know, always something to cherish, probably its significance will continue to decline as we've seen in so many other in industries where the sales and transaction process becomes more and more 
automated, computer driven. And, you know, that very much resembles, you know, the pit, the trading floor of New York Stock Exchange, which just these days it's only a tourist attraction. In reality, all the trading is happening on servers 24 hours a day. In the case of futures and stocks a little bit less, but it's fully automated. There are no shouting brokers anymore that we remember from the films of 1980s. That's all gone and it's a gone era. And we're seeing this happen in street, high street retail over and over. So this is inevitable. And that's probably to, to introduce new technologies into the process is an obvious thing. You just have to do it and you want to be the first. But I think there's another aspect here is go after the new products and go after new markets, new demographics of the collectors and buyers. And I think these are really interesting because they are going after digital art, which is still a tiny portion. But I think there are a lot of interesting demographic overlaps with the potential new audiences that have not been historically their clients. Here I'm going to talk on uh, on behalf of the traditional uh, art world. The traditional art world has been trying to get access uh, to that crowd that you just described for, for a long time. They know that their survival will depend on the new source of wealth. And, and on top of this, this crowd is a lot younger than the crowd they are used to. Uh, work with what the art world would have never believed if that, that will come through the NFT or the on-chain or blockchain uh, way, especially at the beginning. From and I, I was one of the first uh, skeptical. Uh, I always say this uh, here on the microphone, so I don't have any problem to repeat it. But how on earth someone could have the vision that it will come from a JPEG on a blockchain? So. The art world was slow, and uh, I think Philips and Sotheby's were the first one to go into, and Christie's was probably following. So I think it's there, and surely there is a bit of a visionaire in this, and it's going to change the market. And on top of this, we have pandemic that came where everything to do with technology considerably accelerated that trend, and uh, the world will never be the same. Thinking about the, sort of the product and the product, the core of the product, right? And we know, I mean, we're obviously very focused on art, they sell a lot of other products, right? luxuries, collectibles, uh, jewelry, wines, etc. When I look at the statistics of the contemporary art market right, for auction houses, roughly what I see, you know, growing practically from zero at the beginning of the year 2000, which is like, you know, less than a hundred million dollars of volume, booming for the, for a decade, growing very, you know, very aggressively. And then probably for the last 10 years, more or less stagnating at a very high level. Like the reports I saw from Art Price were putting the contemporary auction art market at 2.7 billion. I don't know what the sample was, but let's say the biggest auction houses globally around 2.7 billion per year, roughly stable, nominally not really growing uh, after this gigantic boom times of the, of the early 2000s. I think. I think it's time to think what is the next boom, right? What are the new products, new forms of art or new collectibles that will carry this forward? And obviously, you know, we would be biased here, but, you know, the new, the rise of new digital generation and the new wealth in that demographic is probably directing us towards something digital, right? But I think together with it, there are a lot of other things that are super interesting, which is, you know, I just, I saw you know, a collection, an auction of sneakers, right? Which is new collectible for the new generation, right? There are overlaps and interesting synergies between these products because they are responding 
and uh, responding to what the new generation is about. And I think this tapping into new demographic cannot really be over, uh, overestimated in the sense that you have, you know, when you look at any contemporary art report, basically the price of art, the stock of the, the cumulative aggregate price of, of, of artwork sold in the market, that would people would normally correlate it to generally the, the wealth effect or the, the wealth of the nation, number of billionaires, economic growth, income, you know, particularly the top tier of distribution of the of of the wealth, and that really was was driving the 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 let's say luxurious collectibles and and art, and I think I think we have to admit that you know in the Western world at least for the last years it was the tech industry that was the big the sort of biggest increase in wealth, uh, huge wealth creation by you know what now is a dominant group of companies and corporates in the U.S. economy, and probably going forward looking at the trends currently, that will not only stay, it might even accelerate. This is the demographic that will drive the luxurious market for decades, okay? at least. You need to tap into it, and you need to tap into it with a product that's more or less native to them and the language they can speak, which is, I think, I think why NFTs and other digital products would be you know, pretty phenomenally suited for that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, on top of this, you have... Uh Another trend that uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, underestimate, even if I'm not a wealth manager specialist, my generation and probably the previous generation, uh, and I'm talking as a man, uh, when you were coming from uh, wealth, uh, your your identity was based on what the company your dad was was running and your vision will be to take over the company. Now, when you talk to the younger generation that comes from wealth, they have absolutely no interest in their the company where the money is coming from, and they all want to be in the leisure, not even business. They want to live the lifestyle and not so much working uh, in the factory. So anything around luxury lifestyle has been increasing massively. So NFT, but like you say, sneakers. I mean, 40 years ago, men would spend zero money in shoes. Today... 20, 40, 50 grand, 60 grand for a rare pair of Air Jordan is not unheard of. So everything is changing, habits are changing, and we're going into a new world. So well, well done, Sadabis, then, no? Oh, definitely. These sales came with a lot of surprise, but one was particularly unexpected. The artist itself, Vera Molnar. Vera Molnar is really a pioneer in generative art, being doing so since the end of World War II. Why do we think it's a great choice? Digital art struggles with recognition. Okay? What you're doing here, you're bringing a very well-established, accomplished artists, bringing towards, unfortunately, probably somewhere towards the end of her career, coming in and giving a blessing to a new genre of art okay, that is carrying on what she started, legitimizes this art, and really allow and and really treats it and puts it on a map as a logical extension and continuity of what she started. I think that's really the messaging that I think we want to you know. And obviously, this is this this is central to our mission as the island. This is this is the message we want to push forward. And I think this is a phenomenal opportunity. And I think also to to add to what you are saying in that community what we, I think you call them the OG, the original gangsters. Uh, I think uh, in terms of a street cred, being the original is really important. One thing that's also very unusual is the fact that we have on one side Thurby's 
collaborating with Artblock and the Artblock engine. And the other side, we have the artist Vera Molnar collaborating with Martin Graeser. So two collab on the two sides of the sale. I think it's interesting. I'm going to do a parallel with uh, what a luxury brand does. It's very difficult to increase the price just based on quality. So if you have a pair of shoes or handbag, and normally you sell it for a thousand pounds, it's very difficult to explain tomorrow it's going to be two thousand pounds. So what the luxury market's been doing, they've been doing co-branding. So they're bringing two brands together, make it uh, special, and suddenly from one thousand you can go to three thousand pounds, and people are queuing. I think in that respect, it's the same. We are the course to the bottom when it comes to commissions from other platforms. By bringing two brands together, I can see a similar path that what the luxury industry has been doing. And I wouldn't be surprised if people are happy to pay the price of a higher commission just by affiliating two very strong brands uh, in the space. True collaboration from the traditional art world rarely been uh, very successful. Uh, not that uh, visually it's not interesting or intellectually. It's mainly there's one thing that comes in between and we always tend to underestimate is the ego of the artist. It's very difficult to find a 50-50. Everybody think I should get more recognition, I'm bigger than you, or whatever it is. And it's always end up uh, by the two artists not talking to each other for the rest of their life. In this how about the support aspect? So you're saying, uh, you mentioned, you know, it's a collaboration or support. Here, I think the hierarchy leading artists and support is fairly clear, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, b before you mentioned it, I was not even aware. So. so that's maybe a safer way of doing this. However, the history of traditional art tells us generally these are risky experiments. Any particular cases you remember from history that uh, come to mind? Well, the Warhol, Warhol uh, Basquiat is probably the most uh, famous one. <laughs> so, and we all know uh, yeah, they, they didn't speak to each other after that. One other thing that is quite unusual with this sale is the sale mechanism. For the first time ever, Thoughtbees used a Dutch auction. A Dutch auction is a type of auction where the auctioneer starts with a high asking price and gradually lower it until a bidder accepts the price or the reserve price is reached. So for these sales, the starting price is 20 ETH and the reserve price is 2 ETH. So do we think this mechanism will bring more excitement to the sale? I'm not super convinced on sort of the degree of excitement Dutch auction brings in. There's, there's a lot of research on and experimentation in crypto world or NFT world with respect to different pricing mechanisms, right? And finding in, in, an, in an auction system. And some of them work better than others. I think Artblocks, it's based on, you know, a few years of, of, uh, you know, pretty intense experiments and, and experience of which mechanisms work bet best with those audiences, which ones are of the most efficient and the, the highest price possible for the seller. And at the same time, yes, there is an element of excitement, which, you know, we always, auction always brings about. But I think it's, it's the practical dynamics of what really works and different markets, different segments have their own auction, quirky auction mechanisms and, and, and Artblocks has, you know, massive experience in doing this right for NFTs. 
Look, this Dutch auction uh, system, I'm not very familiar with. I think uh, traditionally it's what we'd have called almost the equivalent in the art world will be a no-reserve bidding uh, with the idea that uh, it helped the room uh, to get started and, and often you can achieve a high result. This, let's see if it works. I think maybe they wouldn't need that excitement because of that co-branding that we just talked uh, about uh, earlier on. Let's look beyond the sale and take a step back. Do we think what we're looking at here is the future of tokenization? I think, as I was saying at the beginning, there are a lot of interesting consequences of this, right? We were talking about tapping into a new audience. Like this audience that will start participating in a Dutch auction in the future can come to the evening auction to buy a masterpiece or could become a buyer for, you know, the luxurious watches sold in a different way. But I think as we would, the comparison with the New York Stock Exchange and the traditional exchanges is, is quite telling. In the future, I would bet traditional physical goods will actually migrate into digital auctions, will probably have an NFT representation of a certificate of ownership that will basically be very easy to transact electronically in all sorts of formats, it almost seems inevitable, right? While the, while the physical piece of art or the good itself can be somewhere in safe storage, deposited somewhere, and it, we're really trading just the certificates, that seems inevitable, very, very logical for many different products across, across, across the world. So yet another, yet another example of how sort of forward-looking Sotheby's are here. Yeah, I mean... Uh Strongly believe in, in this for reason that maybe we might talk another day. Uh, I think it's, it's really important. Every business is mainly auction houses. They're going to look at what we call cross pollinization. It's the ability of one customer that will buy, let's say, web free NFT into buying other goods inside the, inside the action, the auction house. And this is really important. If it's not happening, like Martin said, if the system change, that the registration and the transfer of ownership is happening via web free, then that's how it's going to happen. It could be a bit early to have a, a clear idea on the path, but it's most likely what uh, Martin explained. Thank you very much for listening until the end of this Island podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, the island underscore IO, and on our website, theisland.io. See you next time.